This device isn't a spaceship. It's a time machine. Goes backwards, forwards. Takes us to a place where we ache to go again. It's not called the wheel. It's called the carousel. It was the best time of our lives. Hello and welcome to the Carousel Podcast. I am here with genius Sean Monahan. <laughs> Known genius, Sean Monahan, who, you know, Sean, I heard of you first when I was working at 72 and Sunny. And I don't know if we've talked about this, but all of the um, strategists were obsessed with K-Hole. I believe that. Yeah. And they all just waited for K-Hole to come out and they were so excited to talk about K-Hole. <laughs> and uh, in my whole, and during that time, I was a writer for LA Weekly. And in my entire career of ripping you off as much as possible, which I, I do <laughs> all the time. Well, also I, I with, like with, with, yeah, but I totally ripped that off. It's funny, people all go to me, yeah, you're the guy who came up with hype dads. And I always say, no, I'm not. I, I'm not like super <laughs> proud of that word because it's kind of mean, but um, I'm glad that you, you fleshed it out. Yeah, but you are the actual uh, creator or the coiner of uh, Hype Dads, but you are also the coiner of Normcore, which I wrote a pretty viral piece in LA Weekly about uh, after you as well. So it's funny. I've been doing this for 10 years. I've yeah. just been ripping you off. Well, so, uh, really, they, these things seem to be stickier than you would think they would be. Like, I'm, I'm a little, you know, I guess, yeah, this month, uh is the 10 year anniversary of normcore of the report being released so i think it's like kind of funny <laughs> that people still talk about it and my friends in fashion are still annoyed about it i've, I've gotten the comment yeah you you really killed the fashion system with that one. <laughs> um because that was so, like the split, right? I mean that was when the split happened, I feel like 2014, right? That was 2014. Which split? Well, so the, like, okay, we'll get to talking about this stupid Twitter ad in a second, but but oh, we yeah. might as well just dive in here. But but uh, what the split that I'm talking about is for me, culture split right at Normcore into like mainstream culture that had to keep going further left, and then actual culture which wanted to go right but like wasn't allowed to go right. Right. So it's like, like culture at that point split into the mainstream, which was forced to go further and further left because they wouldn't let it go. Right. And then like I, where I culture think, actually should be, which is like, what well, we're, you know, what I'm doing, like, you know, I think uh, that's maybe like partially true. I mean, 2014 was the year of Gamergate. So yeah. yep. that and was kind of, of like the initial that. shot across the bow over the things that we're still talking about, um, you know, content moderation, misinformation, disinformation, all these like censorious ideas. Um, and I think, you know, it's 
it's funny to think about because you know you have these like really intense like free speech years on the internet right like if you I, like i'm 37 so if you were i don't know a 12 year old on the internet <laughs> you saw some fucking heinous shit um <laughs> i mean i think 12 year olds are still looking at heinous shit online um but no one really paid attention until smartphones became mass adopted which is around like 2012 and that's kind of when the adults entered the room and we're like wait 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 what the hell is going on here um and also you know i think people just ignored digital culture for the longest time um until you had like that mass smartphone adoption so a lot of people i don't know i think you know the digital culture becoming the primary um kind of pop cultural language hit a lot of people by surprise and we're still kind of like dealing with the after effects of that but i but i think you're like somewhat you're somewhat correct i mean because i i mean i what i disagree with is that the mainstream is actually mainstream i think a lot of these problems that we see today and the music industry and the film industry and the TV industry and the publishing industry um, come out of the fact that people got freaked out by what was happening online and overcorrected. Um, and also people got freaked out by the like mob behavior of these digital platforms, you know, because that's that's what Gamergate is like right wing mob behavior against a, like a left wing person. But it happened on both sides. So, you know, you had the publishers and the TV producers and uh, everyone involved in the culture industries uh, also kind of panicked because they didn't want to get embroiled in some scandal. I mean, we both work with corporations and the number one thing they don't like is PR problems. Uh, so I think a lot of that was not entirely sincere, you know, <laughs> and was, mostly just people trying, people try oh, like the kind of like leftward shift of pop culture and the like early to mid 2010s um i think a lot of that was kind of programmatic as a way to avoid scandal um and that's why we see this like new kind of shift right now with like the bud light fiasco which I, this isn't surprising to me that eventually um more conservative activists figured out how to coordinate around these sorts of things and the probability but that wasn't but but come on bud light was not a coordinated that's well, not why that happened. It wasn't like a coordinated boy. Well, it's not it's not top down. Yeah. It's that it's that people, you know, ultimately left left wing versus right wing Americans are gonna have like slightly different opinions on like how collection collective action works. And people who uh you know lean right are probably more anti collective action than people who lean left, right? So I think there was just more uh resistance to the idea that people would go so low as to at attack corporations <laughs> um, <laughs> over their ads but now you know people have they've tasted blood so there's going to be more yeah, totally. <laughs> no but thing. i don't think it was a it, it wasn't coordinating that's why i hate people oh, saying, oh, i mean the Bud I, Light boycott succeeded okay, I, it's like there was I, no I would, coordination at all like it, I'll wasn't, say it, it wasn't programmatic or planned by anyone yeah, yeah. but it was it was uh you know spontaneously coordinated through Twitter. You know, people, there was like <laughs> coordination there. Maybe no one was in charge of it, but. Um... It was just a funnel thing. It's it's a literal funnel decision. It's the perfect funnel 
example, but, you go into but, the store and you are in the moment of purchase. You're staring yeah. at two things that are identical next to you. Three, you have Coors, you have Miller Lite, you have Bud Light next to each other. You're a Mexican guy or a white frat bro or a, you know, white dude in fucking Texas, wherever. And you're like, which one of these am I going to pick? And Bud Light had had the edge for a long time. And then any reason why not to pick that one, you know, people are just going to take it, right? Yeah, of course, of course. I mean, it's it's very fungible. And, you know, I, I actually worked on projects for Bud Light uh, many moons ago. And the number one thing you weren't supposed to say to them, uh, but came up in every single focus group ethnography I ever did was that people don't like how it tastes. So <laughs> if it's something people consume, I mean, they insist that because it's uh, they have the most complex brewing process or something. They have some like, you know, wiggle language uh, right. to get out of it. But but ultimately, no one gives a fuck about how complex it is, you know, like how complex the process is. They care about the end result. Um, so, you know, this this was something that was coming down the pipes towards them regardless. Well, do you remember the whole corn syrup thing that happened just before this? No. Oh, it's actually amazing that this uh, it's like this was Bud Light getting its like uh, it was getting its karma like yeah. two years before this happened. Three years, Bud Light went after Miller and Coors uh, for using corn syrup in their uh in their beer right because we all have like this bad connotation of corn syrup so they had a super bowl commercial being like we're the one year that beer that doesn't have corn syrup in it which probably yeah. is this like more complex brewing process you're talking about yeah but i mean i think I, it's I, rice i think it's like white rice that they use which is i think they do anyway. use rice or yeah beer which is water. also bullshit i'm sure it's equally as bad but uh whatever all, all american beer sucks let's be let's wait mexican beer is way better everyone knows mexican beer is better than american beer yeah, yeah. um it's over or yeah. canadian canadian beer is also better than american Molson? beer. I'm, you're a Molson guy no, my mom is a, a Labatt Blue. A Labatt lady. Blue, right? We don't even have that. We don't have that in LA. That's a. That's I, a I, yeah, I don't see it here. It's got a big maple leaf flag. Yeah. On it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but, but, uh, but that I, is know, a good one. I like Labatt. Pat, wasn't I, Pabst Canadian? Mm, why do I, why did I feel like Pabst was a one? Maybe it's not. I maybe. feel like it's like from like uh, Wisconsin, maybe. It's definitely Midwestern. Yeah, but I'm not sure exactly where it's from. Um, but part part of like what happens in this split also is that um, and this kind of reflects back on the work that I do more formally for companies is that in the early 2010s, a lot of companies were really excited about social media and remember when people used to talk about big data. Um, <laughs> so what happened was they were like, "Oh, great! Now we don't have to pay these expensive expensive researchers to do these expensive focus groups." It takes forever to execute. Um, we'll just have real-time information. And the problem with that is that it, all that information is fucking spiked. <laughs> so I think a lot of these corporations are have literally been flying blind. Um, there was, I might have forwarded this to you, but there was a big article in Fast Company a couple of weeks ago or a couple months ago uh, that was just about, you know, how CEOs hate CMOs. Like across the board, like I think 
every like 30 only 30 or 40 percent of ceos think their cmos are actually doing their job yeah and you know also like of all the c-suite executives cmos are the last ones to ever be ceo like nobody ever goes from cmo to ceo you know, well, there's, there's a really high churn rate. Probably because you're a woman. It's part of the problem. <laughs> yeah, well. It's a high churn rate. That's one part of the problem. And then, yeah. and then um, on top of it, they have all this bad, like, and, you know, I've worked on these things. And, you know, when you get tacked onto an agency or something, people literally just flub the numbers or hide things from the clients that they don't want to hear. Totally. The incentive structure is just not great because if you tell a client something they don't want to hear, they just fire you. Um, so why would you do that? But then that means that they're never actually getting objective information. They're always getting spiked and they're demanding confirmation bias. Um, and then on top of it, you have these kind of like, not very useful, uh, like social listening tools and things like that. Yeah. Which are total fucking nonsense. Yeah. And, and also like the, the other truth is that, you know, since the late nineties, um, there's been a huge like there was a big book a long time ago called the big sort that was about how increasingly like you know people who lean republican move to certain places and people who lean democrat move to other places so increasingly you know you go to these companies and like they're racially diverse but everyone has the same life experience everyone is upper middle class um everyone went to like a top 20 school uh so they just they don't know their consumers anymore either uh, so that's that's the other big hard part. And I think that's why we've seen like kind of a course correction on the leftward shift, partially because of Bud Light. But also, I think, and I said this to you before, too, uh, you know, we had a cheap money regime right throughout the 2010s. So that meant you could just totally shit the bed on your marketing and paper over it with cheap debt. Now we don't have that anymore so people i think are being forced to kind of go back to some like basic understandings but even you know this uh this fast company article is like we'll fix it by following the data and i'm like but like where is it coming from how trustworthy like they like no one seems to interrogate what is the data coming from you know they there's this term in social sciences p hacking which is basically when you just have a a bunch of data and you just like dig around in it for correlations that's basically what they do, which is literally the shit tier. <laughs> Social science has a replication crisis regardless, but this is like the shit tier of even that because there's no controls. You have no idea what is a bot, what's a person, what is a paid promotional thing. It's just a huge uh, unknowable soup. But everyone thinks, oh, well, if we just keep digging around in this like garbage bin, we'll find <laughs> we'll find the silver bullet. Um, well, and it's also, I mean, the reason for that is because the entire system is, you know, Robert Conquest's second law, which is every, you know, not to get into politics. I'm not saying this for political reasons. I'm saying this for institutional reasons. So let me just be clear. Yeah. But Robert Conquest's second law is every institution not explicitly right wing will become left wing. And yeah. the reason he says that is not I'm not making some political point. I'm I'm only saying the reason for that is what he means by that is the agency problem, right? Yeah. And the agency problem is the longer your institution is around, the further it gets from the people who have real stake in its success. 
And therefore, the more people in the who are more, running more it, management you have. <laughs> yeah, right. The more middle management you have, and the more middle management you have, the less people you care about how well the company is doing. And all they're doing is trying to cover their own ass. Okay. And I see not just some, but all internet stupid surveys about you know, oh, which brands are you considering? Or what do you remember this from, from this commercial? To me, all the, brand lift, right? Brand lift studies. These Facebook <laughs> studies that are brand lift where Facebook like pretends to send a million people a survey that no one fills out or pays attention to. And then you've done your job if your brand lift is like 1%, right? Like that's so dumb. It's a, well, it's a, yeah, it's I mean, a, a lot of the, the KPIs are imaginary. Yeah. Uh, like, uh, for a, a friend told me once about uh, Stella Artois and that the KPIs for like how they justify how much they spend on marketing events is they have like a list of things that can have um the logo on it and they have a different point system <laughs> that converts to the amount of money they're allowed to spend. And one of them is actually like a, a lady in a bikini. <laughs> There's like a the lady in a bikini versus like well, like how many cocktail napkins did you put with the logo on it? Yeah, it, yeah. I, yeah, it's kind of funny because it's like you're just inventing these like weird internal heuristics that yes, I don't think have any real correlation to actual value. Um, but yeah, it's it's funny. I mean, but I I think a lot of it is just also because it's people want to be cheap. People don't like researchers. We're annoying. We're expensive. We come tell you things that you don't want to hear. <laughs> who wants to deal with that right um yeah but but yeah i think people have to people are gonna have to actually do real research again like we were talking about the twitter ad and it's just like a soup of cliches right like the first thing that this fictional person well first of all the whole setup is that everyone's an individual okay yeah that no one's ever done that branding before right <laughs> you the user are different than anyone else but seemingly this woman claire or whatever in the twitter ad is like everyone else so the first thing she likes is chess so this is, they're doing like the old Queen's Gambit bullshit. <laughs> oh, she's also a foodie. Yeah, oh, she's wait, 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 okay. We're going to this. She uses the word goat. Uh, <laughs> and she's a sneakerhead too. Um, like these are just like it's just like corporate cliche after corporate cliche. Oh my god, it's so bad. So he's talking about Linda Yaccarino, Yaccarino, however you say her, her name, who is somehow Italian, but I don't know if that's that even Italian possible. But um she she shared this video that's like two minutes long, a hint of what's to come, and it's like the worst brand video you have ever seen in your entire life and it's, well, it's ugly one it's ugly it's trying <laughs> the to music cool. is bad and it's it must the music be free. Is horrible. it must be it must be like an open license thing that they downloaded uh, absolutely well no so here's what you say she said video credit and she credited the guy who made it and the guy who made it is some like total longhouse bug man named <laughs> ted harrison who is the video guy at x right so what I think is happening inside X is Elon is like, fuck brands. I don't care about brands. I don't care no, about clearly, advertising. This is like they spent a thousand dollars on it, maybe. Exactly. Yeah, right. And he's like, I can do anything for a thousand bucks. None of this matter. I mean, look at how shitty the X brand. I mean, is. I, I could I good? could make a better animated video in keynote. And yeah. I'm not I'm not bragging. Literally, I could definitely make a better animated video in keynote. And I have before. 
<laughs> five seconds in five seconds. But it's like Elon is clearly saying, no, I'm not going to invest in this, which is why. But then they just shouldn't do anything. Stop put up garbage. Yeah, no, right. Exactly. Just don't do anything. But clearly this is something she demanded from him. And it's so bad. It's a, it's just oh. like this, this is like what is going on in Linda. Rack- the real, the real truth, though, is, is that this video does not need to be aimed at the general public. Like the network effects of Twitter are already strong enough and addicting enough that they don't need to worry too much about losing users. Um, and the reality is any brand work they should be doing should be pointed at the advertisers, their actual consumers who give them money. Um, and I, I don't think the problem with saying fuck brand when you're trying to get brands to advertise with you is that I I can't imagine showing this to like, I mean, I just complained about a bunch of brands, but they're more sophisticated than this, you know? <laughs> so is, do you think that, so tell me what you think happened behind the scenes with this video. I think, I think uh, the CEO wanted to do some kind of brand reset to like talk about the user benefits of Twitter, which is not actually the problem they have um, to put like a happy face on it. And she had absolutely no budget. And what came out of it was like probably like maybe a week's worth of like half hearted effort. Um, (laughs) And it is just a number of the problem is. Is that like, like, you know, your hype dad thing where you point out all the companies that have made like the goat joke? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's really bad. And yeah, <laughs> the num- I, I've told clients this before and they always look shocked when they hear it. But, you know, the, the first rule of branding is differentiate, right? Yes. You're not supposed to be the same as everyone else. That's the whole point of having a brand. But increasingly, what people say when they hear a new idea is, well, who else has executed it? Yeah. Ugh. And it's like, well, the, you're not going to be different if you insist on only doing things other people have done. Um, You have to have balls, at least a, a little bit of balls, <laughs> the tiniest bit of balls to go, go out and do something mildly different or the branding just doesn't work. And I think that's also why people hate advertising now. You know, like, I mean, it's it's always been a bit of a joke, right? Like you watch like a 90s movie. And they kind of like rag on the industry, but people didn't actually despise encountering advertising in my memory of the 90s. I think the 90s were like the golden age of advertising. Um, And, you know, I was watching a movie like a teen movie. uh, I think it was uh, Get Over It, which is (laughs) like one of remember in the late 90s, there are all these teen movies that were like adaptations of Shakespearean plays. Yeah, yes. So this is one of those about a Midsummer Night's Dream. And uh, there is actually a production of it. There's a play within the movie. And, um, you know, one of the characters is auditioning and he has to sing a song and he can't think of anything. And he sings like uh, the big red, like jingle. And I was just thinking about like, I when's the last time someone did a jingle? Yeah. You know, like there's like a lot of classic plays that are like, I, like, uh, you know, who does a jingle? It's like a wholesome advertising thing to do that definitely works. Because we know if you play stuff, if you pay to play stuff over and over again, it gets stuck in people's heads. Um, but seemingly, like, there's all this low-hanging fruit that, like, no one wants to pick because they're like, well, I don't know, the CMO wants it to feel, like, cool and hip, so we're going to do what everyone else did and make this, like, joke from 2015. Um, you know the only new jingle that's, like, pretty good? Mm-hmm. 
uh, is the new Burger King one. I haven't heard it. Oh, I God, I wish we could play it. It's like the new Burger King ads. It's like this kind of like stone sounding black dude who's (laughs) like intentionally like it sounds like he's intentionally singing badly. Maybe. It like odd. kind of works in it. I, like I've thought, like oh, wow, actually, like this is a really good new campaign because it's like it's funny but relatable, and it's kind of like if it has a if it has a jingle, it's yeah, there's a legit funny. jingle in it because jingles are fun. You know, like everyone tried to make yeah, advertising so right serious last decade. I don't, I don't think people like serious ads. I think they want them to. It's supposed to be pop, right? It's supposed to be consumer. It's supposed to be like candy colored. It's supposed to be fun. No one wants to be in this like headspace of like anxiety all the time. Yeah. Um. Even if that's what the employees of the ad agencies are <laughs> experiencing. <laughs> um. But yeah, I've said this before. I think I think like I think I called it like being inside the marketer's matrix where the marketers are making ads for other marketers. I don't yes. even know how much the general public is actually seeing them. Yeah, <laughs> like when you like look at the like can line awards or whatever. Yeah. I'm what what is this shit? It's like when that movie about deaf people won the Oscar and everyone was like, <laughs> what was that? Nobody ever what saw is that. it called? <laughs> I, I thought the, yeah, what was it even called it was like the apple movie that no one it was, saw. yeah it was like it had like some name for like a group for like, for like a support group for parents of deaf children or something yeah but it was it was like that same like what which is weird because pop culture definitionally is supposed to be popular yes and now and, it's not and now it's not right well i think we're going i think we're getting back there honestly because why and like here's how? my here's my working theory of what happened over the last decade because i think the 2010s were like a big cultural garbage fire as as we move away from them i'm like Ugh, let's just let all that go uh and the problem was in the 2010s we had like all these new possibilities because of the smartphone because of social media because of mass internet adoption so um, smartphone iphone was introduced what 20 20- 2008 2007 2007 okay yeah that was when it was released but it didn't uh reach like saturation i.e like more than half the population having a smartphone until 2012 that's like the inflection year it's amazing that it was only that recently so it's been 10 years 10 years yeah and and i think again we had this cheap money environment yeah zerp so the the model was disruption right and if you look back on how people talked about youtube and facebook it was like, oh, people are just going to make their own stuff and it's going to supplant um, mainstream media. And that's been somewhat true, but I think people are, it's cheaper to make media, but ultimately there's just a big delta between um, a movie someone makes with, uh, you know, a, a, a GAN or something and like the Barbie movie. Like whether or not people like the Barbie movie, the Barbie movie was like a big, good production, Oppenheimer, whatever. Um, there is like this huge delta between these two things. And so now that we killed all the old beasts <laughs> that didn't know how to operate and the money is drying up, the cheap money, I think we're just getting like new institutional players, you know? Like Netflix increasingly just feels like cable. Max is very cable, you know? I mean, they did uh, that. Could you imagine? I mean, I what I'm thinking about these days is like, I feel like when you kill a brand, you like it's like killing a person where like you're gonna have to pay for it later 
and yeah. to kill like a f- great brand, two great brands were killed recently. Disney, HBO, <laughs> which they just killed for no yeah. reason. They were just like, okay, the best best brand well, in all of entertainment. There's, there's not, there's not no reason. The problem was HBO Max was too small. It needed to be larger. Max has like a bunch is an umbrella brand. Um, what they should have done is just rename the whole thing because HBO is still a vertical underneath Max. But and it's they, not effective they wanted, at all. It's, you don't, oh, I know. You they can't wanted, even they see wanted it. to protect it from being associated yeah. with like 90 Day Fiance the other way or whatever, you know? <laughs> but they haven't done that. They haven't. No, done I know. That. They failed. You know, it's it's totally invisible. Like, I, think it's, like I think it's salvageable, though, because people love HBO. I don't know, dude. I don't know. I mean, they, somebody else would have to be in control. I, and the other one is Twitter. I mean, these yeah. were two brands that were in the prime of their life. I mean, I, were just I, I'm not an Elon hater, but I I just can't call X X. No, never. I'm never going to call it X. And I think, we'll never and call I think it X. the logo is ugly. Oh, it's um, have you seen the app button? It's like it looks like like a background of a like a google slides like you know when you get the like suggested backgrounds and it's like yeah. slightly textured <laughs> like that, no, that's essentially like, what the background that's is. been like that for a while though on twitter they've always had terrible like brand visuals no i mean the app button dude the app button the background oh yeah yeah, yeah no no it's i like know marbled well, it looks like a like marbled <laughs> like countertop it's yeah i know it's like a it's seen. like a distressed pair of jeans yeah it's like what, <laughs> why did you add that like what, what is that accomplishing well because because like i was saying the old brand visuals on twitter had this like weird like digital distress thing but that was bad no one liked that yeah. Remember, remember when there was the whale when it wouldn't work? Yeah, I remember the whale, right? Yeah. <laughs> Whatever happened to the whale? Yeah, bring the whale back. Bring the whale back. Bring the whole brand back. Bring Honestly, he's got to bring the fucking brand back. This this X shit is fucking garbage. Like it's so bad. It's I, and you know, you can tell in his head he's like, this shit doesn't matter. Like I care about things that matter, not the stupid brand mark, and that's why he didn't yeah. give Linda any budget for this terrible video. No, I mean it's also why he you know? took he took the logo off of some randos tweet at him. Yeah, know? right. He's just like none of this shit matters, and in a way, he's kind of right. Right? He's not I entirely mean, like, wrong, but yeah, it's, yeah, it's a limiting principle. You know what? I, like the counterfactual of like the same product with good branding, the same product with awful branding. Is that the product with good branding does better than the one with awful branding? So well, not only that, you, the they brand can both be is... successful, but you're you're not fully, uh, you know, exploring the potential if you say, "Well, it works well, but I want it to look like absolute dog shit." You know, like Tell why? The entire... why... Sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. No, no. Well, this is this is part of what I was saying when we kind of when we were prepping a little bit is that uh, there is this kind of American hatred for beauty that i find so annoying um like the fetterman thing like it's just it you know i think his his aides tweeted like well the world didn't end and which really misses the point um which is that americans increasingly live in a world of ugliness and it's spiritually deadening um and this is not a right or a left thing like the grill pilled you know chuds uh, are constantly like, oh, it's what are you? That's gay. <laughs> it shouldn't be pretty. 
And the same with like, you know, the like the neckbeard Redditors also like embrace the ugliest things possible. Um, and I just don't get it. I don't get I mean, I, I feel like it comes from a place of cultural um, insecurity or something because you you don't believe in the possibility that something could be beautiful and that could be uh, like edifying in some way. You just want it to be like the basest, cheapest, you know. And uh, at some point, you're like, I, what's what's the point even, you know? Like I, I had this friend who, or roommate rather, who um was working for this awful um company. It was like one of those like clickbait companies. Where yeah. It was like it was called like History and Pictures or something. And the only like kind of guideline for for the things they would pitch, um, for the slideshows with ads between them was that it was most viral. And I was like, why don't you just do like, uh, you know, the 10 gnarliest shits? Lots of people will <laughs> click on that. <laughs> I just mean like when you actually fully remove any like aesthetic principles, um, you get into the gutter really fast. Because well, so people, how did, how did because this happen? People are attracted to like disgusting, awful things. But we should consider like whether or not surrounding ourselves with disgusting awful things is is good for us healthy well so where where did this so you say it's not political where did this obsession and like worship of ugliness come from like i think i think it's like deep in the american character and it's um a rejection of like uh effete europeans with their decadent artistic traditions um and it's like this perception that uh if if something is elevated or complex or beautiful, that it's like, it's not very American and it's wasteful. You know, it's like some, it's like some horrible uh, fusion of like economic utilitarianism and puritanical hatred of decoration. Yeah, there's definitely and, a and American and like yeah, the longstanding American uh, inferiority complex with Europe. Um, there's like a you're saying there's like a puritan like iconoclastic there's an iconoclastic part of this that that's interesting that's interesting but yeah i mean i guess you're right there's never been i mean americans have really never been the ones that like glory in our architecture i mean we have a little i mean it's the u.s is a big country so you know we we see like this like art deco um comeback happening which i quite like because art deco is nice in that it's between modernity and tradition you know it's modernizing tradition but it it kind of really sits in this funny place where it's not um you know form follows function necessarily but it's trying to find ways to make things modern and relevant um but it still has like quite a large concern for things being beautiful i mean like you look at the new york skyline it's a fucking tragedy <laughs> I remember going into the city growing up. I grew up in upstate New York, you know, so you, you're going into the city and you see like these like gleaming spires of like the Empire State Building and the Chrysler Building and even originally, you know, the World Trade Center. I mean, people dislike that, but that at least was like a aesthetic statement, even if it was kind of um, anti-human and brutal. But it was like, bam. And now you go and it's just like this weird, crowded uh, group of towers. You can't see any of the beautiful older buildings. Yeah. They're all really tall. They all look, it's they're just indistinguishable from one another. Um, and I found it very sad. <laughs> we need a name for 
that type of tower. Like we need an, what I can't believe this goes to show how like the cigarette spire. <laughs> no, this is just goes to show like how completely cucked Americans are. How do we not have a word for, you know, the horrible condo buildings that they build everywhere? Yeah. That are like mixed like, use. You know, it's like, like work, play, five. live, love. It's, well, they, they're they everywhere. Make, it's because it's their cheapest. Like they, they're they, cheapest. Yeah. They're they lowest. Get, well, this bitter. is part of what I'm talking about too, is like a lot of it's regulatory as well. Right, um, yes. That's why we can't build, like, we can't build beautiful things because we literally made it illegal. Mm. Um, and people yeah. underappreciate how stupid that is. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's like I think they're called four over fives because basically you have a concrete base, yeah, and then you can build up to four stories with wood, which is the cheapest structural material to use. Um, and that's kind of why they get built because they're it's the cheapest, uh, you know. But there's a lot of stuff in the. I mean, there is a housing crisis, so I I try not to be too negative about new construction, even though I think a lot of it looks awful because we just need way more apartment units and everywhere <laughs> and houses and i don't know i've been like i've been telling people i'm a stuffist i think americans need more stuff i think that's something people can all get behind booty. we need more booty <laughs> no but like we need more houses we need more like hospitals we need more schools we need you know we need more cars hmm, why what so tell me about your stuffist uh Oh, I just mean like uh, I think that a lot of the problems that you see in the U.S. and the reason why people are miserable is because we've turned a lot of things that are essential like housing and healthcare and education into positional goods, which means people will just spend infinite amounts of money to live a certain place near their friends or for like social status. Um, and that's not really good. <laughs> you know, like where it's like all the money is going to, you know, some not very functional institutions that are all highly regulated. And I think people would be happier if we had really, really cheap, big houses. And the U S is actually the kind of country where you can we have a lot more cheap, big houses. Um, it would make it, I, it solves so many problems when people complain about like not being able to have kids or not being able to get married. And it all just comes down to, there are not enough houses. So we, we do have more of them. Have them though. They're just not in the places you want to be. Right. I mean, you go to Fort no, Wayne, but that, that's not really true. You know, after 2008, we've been building at the lowest rate ever oh, per, okay. per capita. We are not keeping up with population growth. And so it's everywhere, you know, like in my hometown in upstate New York, I grew up in a college town. We have a housing crisis too, you know, and, and it always comes back to the same stuff where, you're not allowed to build new things. You can't build multifamily things. There's weird parking requirements, all this bullshit. Yeah. Um, and I think if in like a post-industrial college town, there's a housing crisis, we should consider if we just need to deregulate like the the market for building houses. Yeah, no, that's a, that's actually a really interesting point. I like this. I like the stuffest. Uh, well, because everyone wants, a, everyone wants a bigger, nicer house. Like, you know, that's, well, and I think that that's interesting. I didn't realize that uh, we are building at a lower rate, and that kind of makes sense. Oh yeah, no, it's and, because and it's just regulation. It's just over regulation. Crash, you know, uh, really wiped a lot of stuff out, and then, um, you know, again, cheap money. So everything went into like speculative tech stuff, speculative stock market stuff, not not building more housing. Um, yeah, and so it's also. 
how do we get rid of these regulations? Like now that we have that, I don't entirely know. I mean, because the hard part about it is that, you know, we live in L.A. Um, To build more housing in L.A., that means some people are going to lose. You know, (laughs) some people aren't going to be happy about it. Some people's neighborhoods are going to be unrecognizable. Um, Some people's views are going to get blocked. Some some people are going to get rich. (laughs) Some people are going to get pushed out of their apartments and be poor. Um... And we kind of want these things to not have any negative externalities, but we have to accept that there will be some because the negative externality of not building any housing and letting like, I feel like there was a story in the times about this, like one evil, like wench in the Bay area, who's like dedicated like 40 years of her life from preventing like an empty <laughs> lot from having a duplex built on it in like Sausalito. Yeah. This has been like the only, the only, she has no children, no family. She's just, she's just looking down, you know, from her cul-de-sac at this empty lot, making sure no one puts a fucking duplex there. Um, Like that lady needs to be disempowered. Yeah. No, part of it is so much of that. It's part it's, of it in, in Los Angeles. So part of this comes from like people hear democracy and they always think more democracy is better. Not always true. So in Los Angeles, we used to have a unified zoning authority for like deciding where housing was built. Then in, I believe, the 70s or the early 80s, we changed to a community model. So there's all these micro community boards. One of my exes is on one. He got on it with uh, 70 votes with the with the express purpose of preventing a 7-Eleven from being built near Franklin Village. Oh, 7-Eleven. Come on. We're on good terms. I like him. But <laughs> I, like, I think I think the fact that one person who's bored and committed to doing this, yeah. it's very low hurdle to yeah. blocking um, how someone uses property. Like yeah. the hurdle needs to be much higher. That's a um, great, that's a great point. We need to get back to like individual property rights. Like whatever, if you yeah. buy a parcel of land, you should be able to buy build whatever the fuck you want on there. And it's like, yeah, sorry if we're blocking your ocean view, but like, look, man, the world changes. Like, you know, sucks to be you. Well, nothing but at nothing the same would time, be anywhere like, if we never changed. Anything. Exactly. I mean, and, and right. We're totally frozen. We're frozen in doing anything because you're right. It's like, we're essentially it's the longhouse. We're living in the longhouse where and nothing can change. You well, know, everything think, has to be I think everything you know, has to be approved by every member. And that's, that's never that's gonna impossible. happen. Consensus on these things is impossible because right. yeah. there are winners and losers in these yeah. propositions. And people are just gonna have to accept that sometimes you, you pick the short straw yeah, and the right. outcome isn't what you like, but yeah. we can't yeah, yeah. not do anything exactly. to prevent anyone from having any negative externality in their life. And I think part of, you know, in California, obviously, like, California's very left compared to the median American state. Um, they've been trying to shake this up because California's losing residents over this. You know, let's be real. The state population is shrinking, and it's because of the housing policies. Um, but a lot of activists don't like it because they're like, but it's going to happen to poor neighborhoods. And it's like, I, I don't know how to create a world in which rich people with many more resources don't have a lot of leverage to ensure that they get what they want at the expense of people who don't have a lot of leverage. And again, like, but probably in aggregate, it will benefit poor people in LA. LA has like crazy housing, like crowding. 
you know, you have multiple families living in one bedroom. Oh, apartments. yeah. That's the thing people don't know. Um, they, don't, and, they don't realize that, like, and so maybe, maybe so some neighborhoods people. will change in character. Uh, but a lot of families will be better off because housing will be cheaper and they won't have to live in, you know, conditions that your average American doesn't think even exist in this country. Yeah, I mean, that's people don't understand that at all about Los Angeles. You know, they, they don't get that. Yeah, we have a really... families living with 17 cousins and stuff like a lot of that, you know, like horrible yeah. shit goes on in like uh, Antelope Valley or whatever. You know, like those are yeah, horror, those are horror shows. I don't even know where that is, but Pacoima, um... right? Everybody talks about Pacoima. Like those are like literal just wastelands of like shitty tiny like windowless yeah, like cinder blocks really, where there's there like 17 no reason, people there is no reason why we can't upzone these places um and have there be like you just go upwards you know <laughs> you no take, that's very true you take, it's like if right. you take the little cottage all the little cottages and turn them into like a four-story apartment building for low-income families maybe you could fit all of those people on that plot of land without them being in these very very cramped conditions um but you know people people really don't believe that if you build more housing the prices will go down and that's just not true um well i don't want to say i hate when people say you know the the housing you see the people at the farmer's market with the big banner and there are a bunch of of course like rich obviously like upper middle class like yeah who are playing who are playing tax rates established in the 70s you know well, no and no but they're saying they say they have the sign that says uh homelessness is a housing problem or housing well, cure it, problem. it is obviously insane. i mean no i mean come on give me a break these people well, are not well, part of it part of it because, you yeah. know it's like it's not like there's no uh it's not like there's no heroin addicts in mississippi um I mean, I don't think L.A. is going to quite be able to replicate the, uh, you know, housing prices of rural Mississippi. But um, the truth is, you know, we passed that tax. Yeah, but nobody what. nobody comes to rural Mississippi. Well, but the what happened was what happened was was they pa- oh, we're we're getting into politics, but whatever. But they uh, housing <laughs> we politics. don't have to we don't have to we can. Well, no, 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 but here's 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 what happened was that they just tried to pack building the housing with like a long progressive wish list. You know, like Ezra Klein talked about this because he was like, yeah, I well, if we ha- we add up all the progressive wish lists and now all of a sudden, like every housing unit for every homeless person in Los Angeles that we want to give them is seven hundred thousand yeah, dollars. Right. No, and, that's literally what they were going to do. And the reality is, is that people with homes who who don't earn very much money in L.A. aren't going to want like this is like a weird incentive structure. It's like you should don't don't work and have kids. Become a junkie and you'll get a free three quarter million dollar condo. Um, it's just not viable as like a proposition. (laughs) Literally, what's happening? I mean, it's not even a joke. Like that's well, I think they only built like three of them though. So like, what you know that that too. Like the fact that you can only get make three in like how many years? Yeah, well, because and that's just the corruption of it anyway. But all right, let's not get into politics. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But my my point my point is stuffist make more beautiful stuff it will it will improve people's quality of life the stuffist movement everyone everyone likes to go to europe and they're like oh it's so nice and it's like it is not impossible to build things like that you just have to accept that you can't have dense work like walkable communities 
and everyone gets a parking spot. Doesn't work. <laughs> if you, you, know, want, funny. you want the cute village feel, everyone's not going to get a parking spot. Right. Right. Well, no, I mean, but now they mandate it. I mean, that's the thing about LA. That's what I you mean. know that, right? They they force you to oh, like lost. everywhere in the country. You have to have parking, which is the most retarded thing. Well, people again, like it's a lot of these are trade-offs. And I think most the average voter or whatever is gonna have a hard time with the trade-offs, which is why we need less input. Because Absolutely. they're not gonna make the trade-off and their opposition to the externality is just gonna mean that nothing happens. Um, which is worse <laughs> than the externality, but we we have a hard time pricing our own inaction. Yeah, totally. Anyways, um, but so in the last thirty minutes, I've never heard this before, so I want to just get the story. Yeah, where did Sean Monahan come from? How did Sean Monahan become Sean Monahan? I want to know this. Um, I don't think you and you I know, have ever even. I I was born in Alaska. Really, uh, I have an estranged. English father. Uh, I grew up in upstate New York. I've, you know, my mom got married. I have some step siblings. I don't know. I was, I was always a pretty eccentric kid, and my mother was supportive of it. You so know, no, was... di no direct siblings, only half siblings. Yes. Okay. Um, but you why know, Alaska. I... Why Alaska? I don't know because my parents are fucking hippies. Ah, okay. <laughs> right. okay. But, you know, my mom has the spirit of adventure in her. She's got some really amazing stories and photographs so good for her pretty cool but um but yeah i don't know you know i was an eccentric child and very stubborn so a lot of the trajectory of my life is literally just telling people i won't do things which is still how i operate today <laughs> i i mean it's funny because it's like you know i do culture stuff so people want you to like lots of things and i think historically like most marketers are pretty ecumenical but I'm the I just hate most things. Yeah, most things I'm like this is disgusting. I despise it. Yeah. Um, like I don't know. My mom has this like story about me when I went to preschool because I got held back in preschool for being too stubborn. Um, and I I just I have like a vague memory of this. So this is the era when I used to insist on wearing knickers to school every day and a bow tie with matching suspenders. Or oh. I wouldn't go to school. <laughs> you were an early DC kid. You were like an yeah early, yeah. Like, I, like, I, like, I was Andy. I was. I was a dandy at age four. <laughs> and I vaguely remember, I just really hated all the other kids. I didn't like them. So I just used to draw in the corner and not interact with them. And the teachers, I mean, it is problematic, I guess, if like one student's like, I don't like the kids. I'm just going to sit over here. <laughs> um, it probably wasn't the worst thing I got held back. Um, but um, so they took away the crayons and then I just sat in the corner with my arms crossed and refused to do anything. And I think it went on for a couple of days before they called my mother. And like, we don't know. She's like, just give him the crayons back. He's not going to do it. You're not going to force him. And the, the teacher, that was like maybe my first uh, interaction with authority where they, they seem befuddled, but like, I'm, I'm like Bartleby the Scrivener, you know, yeah, I would yeah. prefer not to. And then I just don't do it. Yeah. Many, many people in my life have been frustrated by this, but. But you know, this is like the Tom Wolf thing. Irish people, the the nickname donkeys. Oh uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> That's where it comes from. Is Wolf? He's Irish. No, but you he, know, in Bonfire of the Vanities, dude. they have all the cops who have all the like. Yeah. You know, they have all the slur nicknames for each other. Yeah, yeah. That's that's very like that's very like New York City, uh, like public. Sector yeah, dude, I worked in Ireland. Upstate New York's weird because it's like you know. So I'm why from... upstate though? Why Alaska to upstate? Because that's where my mom's family is. 
Uh, okay. My mom's family's been in upstate New York for, I don't know, since like the revolution. Oh, so yeah. very, very strong regional ties. She doesn't like me. She was okay with New York. It's in-state. Doesn't like me living in California. Would be horrified if I moved to Europe and implicitly expects that I'll move home eventually because that's what you're supposed to do if you're a good upstate New York boy. Yeah. Okay. Which, I mean, I like it. Maybe I will. It's not the greatest place for what I do, but it's very pretty. When we're uh, saying upstate, we mean like Hudson Valley. In, no, I grew up in the Finger Lakes. Okay, so that's further west, basically. Yes. Okay. But it's yeah. like I grew up next to Seneca Falls. So it's very steeped in the progressive traditions. Of, I mean, it is where the progressive traditions came from originally. It's yeah. like yeah. Hillary Clinton is always bumping around. <laughs> they have a right. house out in Atlas. And it's gotten really bougie recently, though. Like when I when I was growing up, it was perceived as a bit down market. And now when people hear that I'm from there, they're like, oh, you must be really rich. <laughs> <laughs> so there's been a pretty effective rebrand of upstate New York over the past couple of years. Well, um, that, is that even up? Because when I think upstate, what I realized recently is, isn't that just basically directly north of no. New York City or it includes no. the whole state? It's it's basically everything north of Westchester. People might argue a little bit about those boundaries, um, like whether like you know, Putnam and Duchess and those kind of places are upstate or downstate because that's kind of like the the transition zone. But no, it's it's everything north of that. Okay. I mean, uh, it's 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 disputed though, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah there's because yeah. there's like there's the North Country, which is the Adirondacks. There's central New York around Syracuse. There's western New York, which is like Buffalo and Rochester. There's the southern the tier. Yeah, I mean, it's it's upstate New York is a really big place. It's not super high density outside of the the few major cities kind of along the Erie Canal route, but there's a lot of land. Um, and people have their own peculiarities in different parts. So, all right. So you're in upstate New York. What time, what what age did you go to New Upstate? Oh, before I was born. Or not before I was born, sorry. Before, like, consciousness. Before okay. I was one year old. So when you were very young, you are moved there. And you go to high school there and everything? Yeah, I went to Catholic school. eighth, And then after middle school, I went to the public high school. Um, You know, there's a lot of... There's weirdly a lot of, like, uh, international people around. One, because there's a college. Two, Cor like, Cornell is nearby. And Cornell has... Uh, what's called the experiment station that's in our town and that's where they make like all the different grape and uh apple varietals that's been around since like the late 19th century but it's a big like prestige thing there's like two big ones basically in the u.s the one in our town and then there's another one in davis that's part of the uc system um so you know i i have like a kind of interesting group of friends from places like you know poland and romania oh, and then really? you know the, the upstate new yorkers mm and i don't know our our class was pretty competitive i went to a lot of elite schools but we kind of had a school within a school because they were maybe like eh. you know it was a class of 200 but there were probably like 50 kids who were very competitive academically a lot of them were like the children of the professors in our town or like the white collar professionals um so you know i think maybe not all the ivies but we definitely sent people to most of the ivies i went to RISD. Um, and, you know, I actually had a, my gay best friend who was also named Sean also went to RISD. So some real identity problems there, but 
<laughs> I don't know. It was a it was a weird special place to grow up in. It was pretty avant garde. I learned later because you know when I went to Riz- like I was out in high school, and when I went to RISD, you meet all these kids who went to like you think you're going to be this big hick, and then you meet the kids from Dalton and Harvard Westlake. And they've, like, never met a gay person before. And you're like, huh, okay. Or they've, like, never, like, partied before. Like, it was also a very hard partying town because people love to drink in upstate New York. Um, So the parents are very tolerant of us. Um, You know, like, everyone has, like, farms and lake houses. So lots of bonfires. Um, Like, lots of very, very badly behaved teenagers. <laughs> it was definitely, like, the last era of um of i don't know just like debauchery because like all all of our parents were really stuck in the 70s (laughs) and i like when i go home and i see you know my friends from high school because a lot of them have moved back and started like cocktail bars and third wave coffee shops and stuff we all kind of agree that our parents are like nuts and still think like it's Woodstock or something. Uh, okay, so very well, they were they were like like we would we like we didn't get in trouble for drinking. We got in trouble for like stealing the good beer. Mm, yeah, okay. <laughs> that that was more the vibe. So, what was RISD like with your gay best friends? Um, I mean, RISD's crazy. I, it's it was definitely a good time to be there. Again, it's like was a pressure cooker environment because you take a bunch of eighteen year olds and. You tell them all they're the most talented artists in America and <laughs> and make them uh do like a 40 hour class hour week <laughs> and uh give like just deranged demands. You know, no one's it was basically like when we when you get there, they tell you like mm, your freshman year, you can probably do two of three things, sleep, socialize and your work. Yeah, they say the same thing in law school. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um so a lot of Adderall. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, there's also like something funny about it because RISD has a reputation for being a bit of like a, a cultish school. And I think it's because there's like a trauma bond that happens. So you go there and you have a section. So you take all your classes with the same like 10 to 12 people. And every day your class schedule goes from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. And then you have like, you know five hours of homework to do afterwards <laughs> um yeah and, and oh wait wait and and also everyone lives in the same building so you have the entire class on the same schedule for one entire year and then in the middle of it they have this thing called winter session because they were having too many suicides from the workload <laughs> i'm not joking <laughs> like i think it was like in the 80s they're like okay we have two two like we have a kid a year jumping (laughs) (laughs) off the balcony and winter session is just basically like fake college like where you can just take whatever you can take a glass blowing class you can take you can take one bullshit english class and do no the expectation is you do very little work yeah like for like i think five weeks Anyways, and it's the middle of winter and everyone just gets like really wasted. Yeah. So it's entertaining school. So what did you do after that? Um, you know, then I moved well, I don't know. I moved around a lot because I graduated into the Great Recession and had no money. So my first jobs were like like because this was like, you know, you couldn't get a job. I mean, I couldn't get a job as a barista because people looked at my resume and they're like, we don't want this pretentious art prick. (laughs) <laughs> to yeah. be the barista we have endless 
we've endless uh <laughs> much easier to handle people so i'm not, they were probably right about that so uh what did i do i started writing college essays for rich arabs uh... <laughs> from like saudi and kuwait um so that was like my my jam for a couple of years and then i moved to new york and worked for two kind of like nutty um rich foreigners one from hong kong and one from uh switzerland and then uh k hole took off yeah <laughs> oh, okay. so, so i didn't i never had work like in advertising at all you, huh? you know oh it. no 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 i never had a i've never had a real job really so then how did you even know to make k-hole like what how did that how did k-hole start um i don't there was like a, you know i had an interest in futurism um and science fiction and you know there was this idea i i really liked uh deleuze <laughs> in college very 2000s um and uh, there, in like his book on Kafka, there's this apocryphal quote that like art is a clock running fast, i.e. that like by making things through an artistic practice, you're like anticipating what the world to come might be like, you know, this basic avant-garde concept. Um, and I think, you know, we just thought it would be funny to do. It kind of like started as like a joke, like, oh, wouldn't it be like it was a reaction partially against everyone being so anti-commercial. Um and also an interest in making like fake documents that could trick people so like the seriousness of it initially was um i don't think we were settled on that um like whether it was like a satire or not because it was like a sincere like we weren't saying things we didn't believe but we thought the whole kind of uh premise of it was kind of funny but yeah no i mean i worked at ad agencies now and stuff but I think when I moved to Los Angeles in 2017, that was the first time I actually started working with agencies. Because in New York, people wouldn't hire me because they were like, oh, we don't want to hire an artist. And luckily in LA, no one cares about art. So <laughs> much easier to do. And I, you know, I did that for a couple of years. And a lot of that was just me being like, well, I want to make more money. And I actually don't understand how this industry works. So I, I suppose I was being a bit of a, a spy I didn't really want to work at these places long term so I mean like how did the name K-Hole come up you know I mean like how did well you, I did a lot of drugs in high school I did a lot of drugs in high school yeah. I named it um <laughs> so you're just like K-Hole that's it yeah well I thought it was because you know ketamine's a dissociative drug that seemed like kind of relevant to this idea that uh the internet was like scrambling our brains and we had a harder time yeah. connecting images to the actual like thing they were referring to in the real world um yeah and you know drugs are cool so <laughs> but it was it was definitely entertaining you know after normcore when we started doing some stuff with um more formal businesses explaining to like the cmo of coach or something <laughs> what a cable was yeah like, well, so, so ketamine is, I mean, because now people know what ketamine is. In 2014, 2015, yeah, no one people did that. not know it. This was like, this was like, you had to be a real drug addict. To really. Ketamine. You had to like have really yeah. gone through the arrow. That's why you were, yet again, you were so ahead of your time with that. <laughs> and now, now ketamine has completely replaced Coke. 
You go yep. to every party. Nobody does coke anymore. It's all ketamine. Well, that's not true, but it's a mix. Calvin Klein. <laughs> Calvin Klein doing both. <laughs> um. So, all right. So, so then, um, the norm core thing was that basically like you just were looking around and everybody's suddenly wearing. Well, yeah. I mean, so, so part of part of K hole, like I said, was it was a bit of a reaction against this like presumptive anti-commercialism because you know you you're in like a conservatory art school environment which is just like a little bubble right like (laughs) your parents are paying your bills or your student loans are and everyone's hanging out and partying and it's very easy at that point in life to be like art's not about commerce but then you move to new york city and you're like okay art's not about commerce but then how do i afford a studio say or you know the materials to make the art with um <laughs> and so you know part of it was like kind of tweaking that also you know it was the recession so the art market wasn't that great at that point um i talked about this recently because i did a talk on post-internet art which is like kind of what k-hole would be thought of as being included under that rubric um and i was like there was kind of a weird upside to like no one had jobs None of my friends had real jobs. Like even it was like my friend, you know, I went to RISD, which is next to Brown. So it's like people I knew with Ivy League educations were really just piecing together income through like gig work. So you had this weird dynamic, which you don't have right now, where a lot of the, you know, ambitious people just had nothing to do. Um, And I think that a lot of creativity was accidentally like uh, unleashed through that because the opportunity cost of focusing on doing something creative, you know, there wasn't this like flip side that like your mom was like, you should get a real job because there were no real jobs. But, you know, like it's like my friends are like working part time at American Apparel and living off of like popcorn for dinner. Yeah. But, uh, but I'm saying the norm core thing. Oh, norm- sorry. Sorry. But yeah, yeah, yeah. but but that this is part <laughs> of that same transition um, where, you know, the whole like idea of hipsterdom kind of collapsed in on itself during this period because one uh after a couple of years of being really pretentious and wearing like filthy vintage clothes um i don't know it starts to get it got old and i think a lot of people uh flipped that equation on its head and started wearing like athleisure and uh like nike sneakers instead um and so like our consideration always was like you know why did all of these artists who used to be hipsters start all wearing the exact same clothes when they used to be worried about being d- different from one another? Um, and I think that's kind of the broader flip. Now, my opinion about Normcore and the vibe shift is that these are kind of bookends for a specific kind of information environment, right? Like, so initially, internet emerges, everything gets easier to find. Um, the idea of like finding something special or, or unique that other people can't access that can be gatekept based on like scene logic starts to fall away. But then after Trump, <laughs> it's much harder to find stuff. Like I, you know, everyone agrees you can't really use Google anymore. Um, so, so, uh, and then on top of it, you just have, you have people changing content without telling you um, you have like, lots of micro scenes that happen in discords or group chats you have you know 
Twitter accounts that appear and disappear. Things are less traceable. So once again, you know, there's this uh, scene logic of like there being secret knowledge that people are guarding. Um, and I think that has to do with the fact that the Internet is more censorious and is less uh, transparent than it used to be. Because it was that transparency that really prompted people to go this norm core route uh, because they were trying to be like uh, conspicuously blank so that people couldn't clock them. But now people are less worried about that because the Internet is such a convoluted, confusing place. Hmm. So you're saying that originally with Normcore, it was like everything was so accessible that people themselves were reflecting that? Is that what you're saying? Like there, there was no every, secret I'm knowledge that, anymore? I'm saying that... Uh, the idea that like things like Urban Outfitters or American Apparel might make you unique or special, that different kind of vintage finds, all of this was being rationalized by the internet. Um, so there were there no longer were like secret cool bars or secret cool restaurants or secret cool record stores that nobody knew about because you could just Google it. Yeah. Um, and and everyone was all all on board with this too. Whereas now you see a lot more people trying to hide things, making things more opaque. Um, and it's easier to do because the internet is not as searchable as it used to be. Yeah. No, I mean, because is... everyone's been poking their finger around in it to try and like kind of guide the algorithm, you know, and by everyone, I mean everyone, like the intelligence services, yeah, foreign everyone. countries, yeah, marketers, yeah. everyone. <laughs> everyone yeah. is trying to move the needle one way or another and that's just kind of made it less functional it um, is definitely amazing how certain things are just totally ungoogleable yeah, and, and then certain things are googleable and it's just like there'll yeah, be something even, very basic you just can't but even it. stuff like i mean i i have an instagram i'm not a huge user but sometimes i'll be like oh i want to dm like you know you you know people and you just have a dm relationship you never exchange your numbers and then you try to find them so hard. It's like, like Instagram's like, well, don't you remember precisely what their handle is? And I'm like, no, I know the <laughs> <your> name. <laughs> yeah. um, so a lot of these things, there's a lot more friction, I guess is what I'm saying. You can still find stuff, but it takes a lot more intention. And that kind of like easy transparency of the early social media days is definitely like gone yeah and i don't think it's coming back because i i don't i just don't think like that level of transparency serves power um and also every social media network seems to be you know headed towards decline well what do you make of gen z you know i mean what are they how are they reacting to this because to me they look like you know what what is the deal with their look you know, they're they're certainly not norm core. I mean, they look like somebody put it best recently where they all look like they raided, you know, like what's that AIDS store <laughs> out of the closet? You know, they, they all they all look well, like of course. You know, That's because they're 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 like infused with two thousands nostalgia because they look at images of how young people lived in the era I grew up in, and it looks really fun and free. And you know what? It was really fun and free. <laughs> you know, when you went out and got wasted with your friends and danced, you yeah. weren't worried 
that you're uh, this person who doesn't like you is like surreptitiously filming you to make a mean yeah. meet about you. Like that just that whole kind of like social paranoia didn't really exist. Um, and yeah, so I think part of it is like people like vintage again. I mean, there's like kind of like a certain like greenwashing to it. But again, I think part of it is that people are looking to stuff from the past because it was made better. <laughs> it had cooler design. The fit was better. You know, we we kind of forget that even like jeans, right? Um, jeans all have elastic in them now. That wasn't the case in 2009. Jeans weren't stretch. That's interesting. Well, so what do you mean by that? Like what's... Oh, I, I just mean you used to have to care about how you sewed the clothes together. Because yeah. now most clothing is just stretch because then you don't, the fit doesn't matter. Uh, yeah. You don't have to tailor <laughs> a body sock. <laughs> <laughs> and the same thing with jeans. You don't really tailor. They're just tight and they just stretch over your, whatever the hell your legs look like. Yeah. Um, but, you know, but you buy some jeans from 2005 and they have a very, I mean, they're not like immovable. It's cotton, but uh, the you know the stretch of cotton versus the stretch of elastic is very different um but yeah so people want older things because they're better made okay so what do you think is going to happen with this generation this new generation i don't i mean i think i think it's a little early to tell i mean i think one we've always seen that they're a bit more pragmatic millennials are like their boomer parents yeah. um and I, I definitely, I comment more on millennials just because I, I am one and I know that psychology more deeply. Right now, millennials are are turning into materialist yuppies, just as their parents did. <laughs> well, like, yeah, okay, we are totally like all those, all those yeah. youthful politics, whatever. I need to make some fucking money. Um, <laughs> that's the overriding vibe, uh, which is exactly what happened between the seventies and the eighties, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah right. Um. Gen Z, their parents are Gen X, so there's a certain like apathy. But also, what I appreciate about them is that they seem more interested in subcultural things, even if they're struggling to find or maintain those subcultures, because yeah. there's no cheap places in cities anymore for them to go hang out in. Um, I mean, that's the real tragedy. Like I remember explaining to one friend, I was like, "You, you just don't really understand that, like." A lot of my friends when I moved to New York lived in warehouses. <laughs> like yeah, lived in like that, literally like, shitty like shit. literally yeah. in places that are human beings are not supposed to live in. Yeah. Um <laughs> I, and they, when, I, when I moved to New York, we lived in the West Village and it was me and my friend fraternity brother from college who worked at Blackstone. And we lofted beds in a one bedroom in the West okay. Village. There was a total piece of shit. And even then, the millennial chicks weren't down. Like, even though we were living in no the, the so best neighborhood, <laughs> like they would come back and they would be like, oh, I mean, with me, they didn't care. But with the Blackstone guy, the type of girls he would bring back, they would be like, oh, no, no. And these are like 23 year old girls. Whereas, you know, Gen Z girls would not give a shit. They'd be like, yeah, sure, whatever. I mean, like, that's probably true. But but my, my point more so was just that, like, you actually could have these crazy parties because you had a lot of space to do stuff in. Yeah. Um, yeah okay. And there's not very much urban space for Gen Z to do stuff in. So people are a bit down. But they have on lower standards. That's what, I mean, to me, it means they just have, like, they're way more 
I just feel like Gen Z is way. They don't have a choice. They don't really have a choice, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think even when like businesses have been complaining about, they're like, why do they leave at 5 p.m.? And it's like, it's a strong labor market. (laughs) (laughs) This whole trick you played on millennials that we should all like work until nine and that that was going to help advance our career. It's not working on them. No, Uh, it doesn't work on them at all. And that was totally in when I was in, when I was, I don't want to be totally negative. I think there's a lot of great things about Gen Z too. Cause like one, that's great. Like don't get psyoped into giving people free labor. Um, (laughs) It's definitely disturbing to businesses, but that's just because they had, they had the upper hand for a very long time and they got lazy. Well, it was as you said, it's the perfect boomer mirror. It's the perfect mirror. The the millennials are in every way the sons and daughters of the of the boomers. Like they're the yeah, perfect and, and, like, and like Gen Z yeah. or like Gen X, Gen Z is like much more pragmatic, less idealistic, right. more realistic. Yeah. Um you know, they're I think it annoys older people that they don't seem as like hopped up on utopianism um or we get like these kind of weird like advertorial psyops that like no they actually they love they love all the same stuff as millennials they're just even crazier about it which i don't in my experience isn't true so that's like part of my thing is like i clearly know a very self-selected group of young people because they're young people who hang out with my friends and are like around socially. So I know that that's not necessarily representative. You know, I live in LA, blah, blah, blah. Um, But at the same time, I don't really trust most of the research that I see about Gen Z because I don't trust research in general. So when it, when the research is really obvious, says exactly, what everyone's been saying for years i just have a little really getting the whole story you know yeah 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 definitely i mean who knows you know and all these things are so fleeting anyway i mean as soon as you pin one thing down i mean this is what's kind of funny about what you do sean is like these trends that you predict are so powerful and obviously like everybody responds to it and they they all feel very true you know like vibe shift and everything but there's also so fleeting, right? I mean, it's like, what do you say when people come up to you and they're like, well, what's going to happen with the vibe shift now? You know, like, how do you respond? I to say, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot I don't know. I don't even know what the vibe shift I, is. I, I, you know, <laughs> I think you get you get old enough and you realize I don't have to pretend like I know things I don't know. That's that's yeah. dangerous. I can just say, I don't know what, about that. Uh, if you would like for me to find out about it for you, I certainly pay, pay for a price. <laughs> Give me some money. And then I'll well, work. I did I did a project about a year ago about suburbia, which is funny because I've never lived in suburbia. And I don't really know that many people that have. And it, it kind of like it got derailed a little bit because the client tried to change the scope mid-project. Womp womp, tails all this time. But uh when we were talking about it, because you you kind of like dig in because like what is suburbia is kind of an interesting question. And you find that there's like different population density ranges that when you survey Americans, they come up with pretty much the same answers of whether they live in a rural area, a suburban area, or an urban area. And so for me, I've spent my entire life in rural areas and cities. I've never lived in a suburb. Um, and, the, and also by virtue of living in rural areas and cities, 
I don't know that many people who have spent their entire lives in suburbs. I don't think I know any. Uh, it would be hard if I've if I've never lived in <laughs> a suburban place to know people who spent their entire lives there. Um, but it's definitely kind of I mean, because I feel like this is like to go back to the problem of advertising. It feels very suburban. Um, but I even remember this client because they, they didn't like that I was giving them like trends for millennials moving to suburbia, which is like a thing that is totally happening. A lot of you know, millennials are entering middle age. They're forming families. They are realizing tales all this time. Uh, I want more space for my kid. <laughs> Yards are good. Blah, blah, blah. Um, but they're like, no, no, no. These are too trendy. Like the hype dad stuff is too scary. Like what trends start in suburbia? And I was like, I don't think any trends start in suburbia. <laughs> That's, suburbia is like kind of where they go to die. Um, not, not to be too mean, but, you know, suburbia is pretty conformist still is even what if it's like, like grunge though i mean like what about that i feel like that I mean, the 90s is for sure has some suburban shit right like grunge type kids skateboarding that was from seattle yeah so seattle's just a suburb basically right i mean it's like, yeah, like it's a suburb. <laughs> what do you mean that's no, no, is just a giant suburb skate, skate culture in the 90s was like a new york thing come on it's I know that, like, I'm not trying to be too mean to the suburbanites, but ultimately people don't move there to partic- to be avant-garde. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, what are you talking about? People don't yeah, go to the, the kids, suburbs. the disaffected, but, come on, the disaffected kids. Well, this, this, is one, this is one thing I will say about, because we have like a, we have a trend of like neotony, i.e. that people are that? aging. It means people are aging. It means that technology is domesticating us. So we are aging at a slower rate. Like, you know, all those videos are like, wow, everyone looks so much older. Yeah, 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 yeah. So people are younger, longer, and we treat people as if they're younger, longer. Like the way we talk about college students now is how when I was growing up, we talked about like middle schoolers. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, um, it used to be nobody even went to college. It was like yeah. when you were 18, you were that was it. Yeah, you had to. Right? Yeah, right. Yeah, when you were eight, you were you were supposed to be married by the time you were twenty five, and now like that that's like child abuse to get married before (laughs) twenty five. So our standards have changed, but I think what that also means is that teenagers aren't really where you go to find new trends anymore. It's twenty somethings. Like well, okay, so this brings us to our final topic, which is hype dads. Yeah, which you and I have both talked a lot about. But, <laughs> but hype dads are, are an interesting example of this because the way that I see hype dads are, they're they're like you know in the past, the older like guy in any company, whether it's advertising or anything, is kind of like um, you know the the elder statesman. Everybody wants to be like that guy. Yeah, they want to be the older guy. Right? Now everyone wants to be the intern. Is, right. Now the older guy wants to be the, you know, young, mixed race, 19-year-old, like, pot-smoking intern, right? You know, yeah. so it's like everything is, like, reversed. It's like the, 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 the guy is trying to Benjamin Button down to the younger people. So he ends up looking like a complete fool because... And they always, they always look like the Redditor meme. Every time. What's the Redditor meme again? You know, like the bald guy with the beard and like the black rim glasses. Oh, yeah. The Hey Kids. The Hey Kids. <laughs> yeah. Or, or the, no, you mean no, the I mean, Soy like the Jack. Reddit, you mean the, the Soy Jack. You mean the Soy yeah, Jack. Yeah, yeah, 
who's going, oh, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's always what the hype dad looks like. <laughs> yeah, right. He's like, oh, the new Kendrick Lamar album. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Freddie Dupour. I mean, I, I don't know any 40-year-olds obsessed with Kendrick Lamar. Obviously, I don't hang out with communists who live in Brooklyn. Hype dads so. also aren't 40. Hype dads are 55. <laughs> some right? of them are 40 now. I mean, some um, of them are 40. uh well the thing is because i mean i did a project for i can't name the brand but last spring and so i went to new york and i talked to a bunch of cool young people and they and they like millennials so here's like another pattern that we can see millennials were like a hugely marketed to demographic when you were younger remember the concept of the tween brand obsessed yeah yeah like like Abercrombie and Fitch that was uh that was the millennial version of Supreme and then you know the millennials went to college and they're like oh fuck consumerism I'm gonna wear these like dirty filthy rags um and you see the same thing happening with Gen Z where they look at the Supreme stuff and they're like oh that's that corny shit I used to wear when I was 13 and so older people aren't realizing I'm like well I don't know I mean I can't who knows what these people are like Personally, I changed a lot between the time I was 13 years old and 23 years old. <laughs> um, maybe these people have been the same their entire lives. I don't know. But it's pretty normal to rebel a bit against uh, your first forays into individuality when you actually go out into the world and try to like form some sense of self. So I find it totally obvious that this was going to happen. And I've been hearing for a long time, like a, a fellow researcher told me that she was doing a project in London and she was like, yeah, I just talked to all these young kids and they all said sneakers are old people's shoes, which we can see from the Linda Yaccarino video where it's like Claire. He likes chess. Claire, Claire who seems to be like 38, loves is a sneakerhead. And she's a chess star. And she loves chess. She loves Netflix oh my and God. sneakers and kale. Um, yeah, kale, right? No. Kale. No, um, is anything more out of style than kale? Anybody eating kale today is just like the least cool person. I, I always hate kale. It's kale just, is it's not. It's kale not inedible. There's it's so not, many on lettuce. Rocket, I also don't like. I'm a big kale butter. is genuinely butter lettuce is good. Spinach, spinach romaine, spinach iceberg in an iceberg wedge, amazing, classic. Yeah. There's just a lot of lettuces to choose from. I, I, I mean, little gems, them. little gems. Yeah, little gems, best. amazing. Little gems are the best lettuces by far. There's by so far. many. Kale is really the most basic lettuce you could choose. It's not even a lettuce. It's it's not even Whatever. meant to be eaten by humans. It's genuinely like not <laughs> edible. It's <laughs> not for like edible. ruminants? Yeah, no, it's like not edible. Like you, th- <laughs> It's like raw kale. You should not eat raw kale. It's like not, you're not supposed to eat it. It's genuinely- That's why you have to massage it because your digestive system can't break it down. And exactly, it's like warm. yeah. Um, but yeah, I I think the hype dads. We we knew the trend was over when the Simpsons made an episode making fun of streetwear culture. Yeah. Right. Did you watch that episode? Uh, no, but I think I've seen. Things. But it's literally it's literally all the dad like like Officer Wiggum and Ned Flanders and Homer go to a store called Slipreme and start wearing <laughs> all the clothes. And then Bart and his cool friend like stop wearing it because they're like, oh no, our dads are doing it. Yeah. Do they still um, make that show? Yeah. <laughs> there are new episodes of The Simpsons that come out. Yeah, that one I think came out maybe a year and a half ago. The funniest thing, I, I did a talk about this. I, like, I talked about Hype Dad a little bit. 
because I use like the the big offenders are um Jonah Hill and Seth Rogen, yeah, who both have television shows out right now. Like Jonah Hill's those people, and um and uh Seth Rogen's Platonic, where they just have like really annoying outfits. Oh, the older you get and the more ridiculous you dress, like the more annoying it is. Dude, it's I, I just went. I shouldn't say this, but I went on a trip with some normie friends. I won't be more specific than that. And they all yeah. like fucking lame. The sneakers. Yeah, I just Ugh. wanted to jump off a fucking bridge. It was like these guys never, in a, you know, like 10 Plans years are ago. Circular. Things are never ago, they were wearing Sperry's. You know, they were wearing Sperry topsiders five, ten years ago. Now it's like brightly colored Nikes. <laughs> and I'm just like, ah, oh, you're killing me. Like, please yeah. stop. Please stop it. You know, these are like fourth well, this- class people, you know, like like they're the, the end. It's the very well, this, end. This is, the this is the, the trend adoption cycle. When it reaches the laggards, which is where yeah. That's where we're at. Where, where like hype when it's a, when you're reaching a bunch the of original people who liked it run <laughs> yeah. like the wind because yeah. it's like because when your grandpa's doing it, it's not cool or edgy anymore. Yeah, no, it's absolutely not. And but that's but here's here's my hope, and this is the question I want to pose to you. Yeah. Don't you think we can get back to a world in which the hype dad that role in the business is proud of being and like a old white dude, not necessarily white, but just like old dude, you know? Um, possibly. Like, I I think part of this problem is like the boomers fucked a lot of shit up in terms of social reproduction by not um cultivating successors, which is yeah, part of yes, part of being a they, leader. They brought the ladders up, dude. They brought the ladders up. Yeah, and that's they did. and that is part of why yeah. they have to go through this whole performance. Yes, they pretend like they're they're into the culture and they love off white because um they're trying to pretend like they shouldn't be doing that. Their time yes. isn't up. Yes, totally. Like, no, I'm I'm cool. I'm with it. I get it. Yeah. Fuck the other the people beneath is, me. But like, yeah, like I'm gonna I'm just gonna rip that ladder right up so nobody else can climb up. Yeah, I'm just gonna rip off. I'm gonna like badly imitate the young people at my company instead of like cultivating them as my uh my right hand man or something. Right. Um, but, but how the funny do we thing, get back I, to that? I mean, I feel like we gotta get we, it that can't go on. I think I think millennials, if they're not imbeciles, can potentially lead the way it's gonna have to be i us. think we have to i you know what i think millennials have part been of that means like growing up put on a fucking suit you know we've been absolute pieces of shit for our entire lives there yeah. and, and millennials are the there's worst. reasons why but it's but at the end of the day you're still it's your life you know we're the absolute worst but maybe the difference with us is that we will have redemption later on like maybe when we're 50 the millennials will redeem themselves and be like, all right, enough of this bullshit. Well, like our parents were wrong. Like- we, are, we are, we are now, millennials are now the largest age demographic in the U S and that's probably going to be true for 20 years, a while. the way that the boomers were the largest for like 25 or 30 years. You truly are. Do you Sean, you are an advertising strategist. Do you know that? Um, I do You're like the best advertising strategist alive, but you realize that like the way you think in these surveys and stuff yeah, is totally, that's like a strategy. You're basically born to be an advertising strategist. 
Yeah, but the, you know, no one ever really offered me enough money to make it appealing. That's what's and, insane. And, I cannot believe nobody's ever offered you enough money to do that because I have yeah. some. I know. No, I, I did it. I, I did it for a little. I did this. it for a little bit. I did. I did take a job for a little bit, and then the office politics. I oh, it's so, the worst. No, you. Wouldn't I mean, I, I had. I. I mean. I really like freaked. I was like, I can't do this. I like had a panic. No, Sam, it's impossible. And I just quit and ran because I was like, I had this vision of my life, and I was like, I'll kill myself. <laughs> <laughs> no, dude, I I have never but, felt more despair in my life coming than coming home from my. But honestly, job. I mean, they didn't offer me like the worst salary ever, but pretty immediately, I replicated that with probably ten percent of the effort. So. I mean, it's it's different working for yourself because, you know, you can't you can't just fill out your your day in the same way. There ne you need to like leave time to think, or you you're not going to do a very good job. No, uh, you can't work for other people, man. It's impossible. But but, Somebody, but some ultimately, some people can, some people can't. Yeah, I mean, but yeah, well, I because someone asked me this, they were like, "Are you money? Like, what are you? What motivates you?" And I was like, "Independence and money," which is like companies do not like that combo. Because it's basically like, I want to do what I want, and I want you to pay me a lot of money. And it works a lot better when you're an independent consultant. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so, what would it, it's if what, how much money would you want to make if you like, what would make? Oh, you I'm not going to answer that. You wouldn't say it would, it would definitely have to be closing in on seven figures at this point, I think, for the like the big lifestyle a year? downgrade. A year? Yeah. Oh, jeez. Yeah. That's not going to happen. I do pretty well. I'm not going to like, I'm not going to get up and commute every day so I can be in useless meetings for 40 hours a week and then do all my work at home at night. Yeah. And then on top of it, you know, uh, the work product declines when you're in that kind of environment because businesses also don't like, they ask me like, how do you come up with these things? And it's like, I'm a very social person. I know a lot of people. Yeah, you got to be out. No, you have to be out. In the world. Yeah, you, you can't be, be in the world if you're working a 90 hour week just pumping out bullshit. Well, no, but that's so this is the whole problem with the entire industry. Yeah. So this is what we used to be able to do. But, you know, it used to be that, yeah, we, we need to be out all the time having our finger on the pulse. You know, I mean, this is yeah. what this is what people in advertising do, because we need to know the people we are advertising well, to. My, that's the in whole my experience. Point. Most of the people who work in-house, you know, I mean, and a lot of them are very nice and very smart, but ultimately their lives are like, they go to bed at nine, they get up at 5 a.m., yeah. they go and to then the they gym, work, 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 they, work. They, they, and they yeah. white knuckle through, yeah. just procedurally, they, they're going through the motions, you know, there's no, it's so there's no ridiculous. spark or insight there, no, because and they, they're they just, all overworked, Yeah, because every, because the ad agencies are all committing mass fraud. We know this. Yes. We've been caught, and the, basically, the only reason that the that their clients don't sue them is that the only thing worse than being defrauded by your agency is having to do all your advertising yourself. So, <laughs> so well, that's like, not true, though. You know, all the all the in house agencies that was a big movement about three yeah, years. Yeah, and then ago. we got the Pepsi ad, and then you got the Pepsi ad. <laughs> and then, and then, so you saw what happened? Well, I mean, I mean not is... that not that any of the other shit they're making is that much better. So, I mean, it's not. No, it's really, just it's yeah. just that. I mean, I. Personally, I like the Pepsi ad because I, <laughs> I, you know, I, I will take just like a garbage fire, insane, like who the hell 
like the guy on the roof with the violin that they shot by a <laughs> helicopter. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. <laughs> roof, roof violin, man. Yeah, yeah it was like an action movie that turned into like Kendall Jenner, like offering Riot Police a Pepsi. It was the funniest, the, the, the crazy thing too, you just, you know that there was some, someone very high up in the org chart had that idea. And everyone was too afraid to tell him, this is terrible. Because, <laughs> you know, ultimately, a lot of people in business harbor this delusion that if only they could, like, do it their way, they're, like, secretly creative geniuses, you know? And it's the agencies just aren't, like, doing what they say, and that's the problem. And then this really disproved that delusion. Right. Yeah, no, exactly. That's what that's what it was. It's like if too many people drink your Kool-Aid, like... It's well, it's, I mean, the other problem is, and I face this as a consultant, too, is that a lot of the time, middle management at companies, they, they perceive their primary job as just, like, blocking anything good from happening. Yeah. They don't want it to outshine them. Well, now it's all that. I mean, now the yeah, and that's why I had to get out because I just could see that there was they were never going to let anything good exist. No, no, you know, like their 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 whole strategy is to like keep their heads down long enough for the people that try to do cool things get fired yeah exactly. <laughs> so no that's, no that's really real though i mean that that, oh, that is really true like they, you can't make any it, it's not that they don't want you to make things that are good it's just that they there is no possible way that something good can survive the death of a thousand cuts process of oh, any yeah. idea you know there's it's, always, it's literally there's impossible. Way, there's way too many people involved i i say yeah. all the time the last good campaign the last great campaign was most interesting man in the world what is the line of most interesting man in the world i don't always drink beer but when i do i drink dos Equis. imagine trying to get that line Oh, I know. I don't always drink beer. Oh, I can already you hear would, that. Everybody would be like, Why "What are you talking about? We're selling tell beer." Them that. Yeah, yeah. It's beer. What do you mean you don't drink beer? What What are you talking about? No, like, that would be it. Would be dead in the water. It would be immediately fucking dead. And like somehow that survived at the last minute. That's what I'm saying. That came out in what 2014, probably 2012. Yeah. Like that was the end of the road. Like that was the end of of uh, when the when the mainstream could still make anything good. You know, no, that was, I, that was I, I, I remember I met this like startup founder. We were having lunch, and he was like, "So, what's the best agency?" And I was like, "There really isn't one." He's like, "What?" Are you? I was like, "There aren't good agencies anymore." I mean, Wyden and Kennedy is the only one that's still at all good. They did the grimace thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've spoken there. I like the Wyden and Kennedy people, but yeah. they share my same insight that the problem with advertising is the clients. The clients demand too much because even sometimes I have clients where they put so many parameters on the out that you're like, I'm like, the reality is, is that your ideas are nonsense. <laughs> and my my job is to not turn nonsense into sense because that's impossible. I'm going to try and sell you on sifting through all this garbage you gave me to find like one good thing that we can lean into. But then they just will never uh go go along with that you know they'll go along with it that's the thing like they will go along with a good idea they just then will kill it like they have to kill it like there's just too many people 
yeah for anything to survive well, there's too many like, people and, and the the incentives partially because you know we've restructured the economy since the late 90s towards like having more fungible workers which i think a lot of companies were like great we're saving money because when you um when you hire from outside the firm for a promotion they don't know what the salary rates are so you can you know negotiate them down more easily but now the situation you have is no one there has any long-term loyalty it's not in, like my friend was like why don't people try to fix like problems brands are having or try to do something and i was like well because they're only going to be there two years before they jump ship to the next thing yeah so and ultimately trying to so solve a big hard problem you need more runway than two years you know, it's probably going to take you a year to just get sign off to even begin approaching it. Um, and then if anything goes wrong, you're on the hook. You're doomed. So there's there's very little incentive for people to do good work. A lot of incentive to just take, you know, the path of least resistance towards whatever nonsense the client has in mind. Um, But also, you know, I... Like I said, I just I can't help but think it's it, it comes down to the clients because they have the upper hand, you know, like they have the leverage, especially because AOR has really declined as a model, like agency of record, oh, which, yeah. I mean, that which gives you a lot more leverage. It's the pain in the ass to change AOR. There's a review process. Yeah. It takes months, months and months. There's a public bidding process. It sucks. But when you have project based advertising, which a lot of companies prefer because it gives them more leverage. It means you're never if there's a big problem, you're never going to get it fixed because you're never going to have someone on the outside who has leverage to try and convince you to to go for it, to do something about it. Because um, even, you know, the people inside need that leverage from the agency side to convince the people above them to go along with it, too. Um, so it's too easy for agencies to just like agencies and clients to just avoid ever making anything good. Yeah. And it went so far. I mean, it hasn't had too much of an impact, but I think that now, you know, it's start that's that I do think that's starting to change with Bud Light. I, I do think that people are like, all right, well maybe, and this is also a ZERP phenomenon as you, as you're saying, I think they're like, all right, you know, maybe we can't knock 1% of the revenue off of, the entire AB InBev balance sheet because of some stupid bad idea, right? I mean, it's like, yeah. that's not a, it's still only 1% of their revenue, but for that's actually quite a lot of money. You know, I mean, they, they care about 1% of oh, yeah. revenue. Oh, no, yeah. No, no, that, no. That's enough. I mean, it's it's also a, hum it's a public humiliation, too. Uh <laughs> I mean, I don't think they give a shit. I genuinely don't think they give I, a I think I, they I do think because you, you know, for the next five years, whenever they switch roles, whenever they switch, they're like, oh, you were at Bud Light then. And then <laughs> Everyone's the going to say, oh, my God, did you it's see that? Follow them like a, it's going to haunt them. And the people whose names are specifically attached to it, when they look for a new role, people are like, uh, well, how do we think they they're, they're not they're not going to get the oh, they managed it great. They're going to get the oh, yeah, that was a mess. You know, like, well, the best thing was no one wants with... to be the person who famously uh, brought down the most consumed beer in America. Yeah, and made it like not even like, yeah, I think it went way down. Where, where is it now? Three? 
I don't even know. I don't know. But, <laughs> I, think it's I mean, still I think falling. the thing that scared them the most was naming Alyssa Hannerschneid, you know? Mm -hmm. I, they named yeah. her, and that freaked them out well, so much. Herself. Did you see the Daily Mail, a tabloid, mm. took down the article about her? Did you see that? No. Oh, dude, I wrote this whole piece about it that General Flynn shared. The Daily Mail published... A great tabloid piece following Alyssa Hainerschneid around New York City. <laughs> yeah. Do you know who Alyssa Hainerschneid is? Yeah, yeah, no, I saw the video. She's she was the, the, she was the, the first woman. She was the first woman in charge of brand of a major American. Yeah, so beer. they found out she lives in an eight point five million dollar. Oh yeah, I mean, I, I actually remember reading this. Yeah, yeah, and, and no, it, it was husband. great, and it was like it took pictures of her hanging out with her friends, and she's this like you know I'm sure she's actually quite pretty and like nice in real life but she's being yeah. you know she's never had tabloid pictures taken of her she's 45 they're not you know? trying like, to make you they're she probably choosing looks the great for 45 frankly like she probably looks really good but she's never been in yeah, the they're, they're definitely they're definitely yeah. choosing the one that is most humiliating yeah, right so they they totally <laughs> humiliate her they're like she's living in an 8.5 million dollar house yeah here's her in central park with her stupid friends <laughs> it was fucking glorious it was so good and they took it down they literally, they fucking took it down without a word. They never mentioned it. They never talked about it again. You can see, I wrote oh. about this and I have the links to the archive. Well, let's, I wonder what? Yeah. Well, the UK Stand has it. very different libel laws and stuff. It's much more yeah, on the side of the person not, not being as attacked. Much free speech. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On the upside, if someone slanders you in the UK or Canada, much easier to sue them for quite large damages. They have well, to. That's prove... probably what happened here. In, I mean, in, in sure the U.S., happened. in the U.S., you have to prove that uh, the other or the other person was oh, sorry. Um, in the U.K., the person who says something has to prove that it's true. In the U.S., we have to prove that it's untrue. You it's a very different legal standard. Falsity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but now but there's all these invasion have... of privacy. But if privacy other person culture. says something about you and they can't prove that it's true, then they have to pay you. Right, right. So that might be part of that too. Yeah, that no, I'm sure it is. I'm, I think that's probably exactly right, that there's stricter laws. Especially if she has a wealthy husband who's probably not invested in the mother of his children becoming like a... Uh, some of the tabloid is following endless. The well, tabloid. they were like a New York Times marriage, you know, met at Yale. Like they yeah. were like very typical, like exactly what you would think. But you know, I mean, that's how these marketing firms work. You you realize or the marketing firms or the uh, these big companies, you know, like the people that run them are basically like apparatchiks or what, what you not. Maybe that's not the right word, but like. They're like public bureaucrats and they, yeah, they go to these, they go to these good schools and they get filtered into these CEO and CMO jobs. And then they just rotate like every no, like no. three years, they go to a new place. And yeah, that's essentially, I mean, I've, I've, I've worked with these people. I've worked for these people. Yeah. I, I have, I have not, um, you know, you come out of the art world and you know, you, everyone has a grass is always greener perspective. The art world's a very hard industry to be in. Um, if you want to call it an industry, even <laughs> it's hard. It's a hard situationship. Um, but you go to the business world and you're like, well, these people, they must be like highly competent, very intelligent, because you also kind of want to believe 
that corporate America has someone steering the ship. And then you realize, oh, no, like yeah. not oh, all yeah. these people are imbeciles, but very a, a frighteningly large number of people, their opinions and beliefs are not reality based. And they live very much. in. A, I mean, I think this is also why ads and a lot of like, you know, ABC style television, they have this like look to them where I'm like, I just don't know anything that looks like this. Like I don't, this like it's like do, this doesn't, and I'm probably closer to it than a lot of the people they're trying to reach. Like this kind of like upper middle class like bourgeois experience is so niche. You know, it's like ten percent of the population or something. Yeah. Um, and you just you you look at it and, you, and they they perceive this as well. I heard this all the time when I I work more with the agencies that like my thinking isn't normal. That they're normal. And I'm like, you guys aren't normal. You're totally weird. <laughs> now, yeah. No one agrees with your political opinions. Um, no one lives like you do. You're not aspirational anymore. This is like the big thing. The big knock to the upper middle class over the 2010s is I don't think a lot of people find their lifestyles aspirational anymore because so much of it is about money grubbing and overworking yourself and it, they just seem miserable and they are they're on tons of you know psychiatric medications and yeah, and also yeah. and the world that they live in while while clean and like moderately nice yes it's still like ugly you know it's not pretty yeah no not I mean, it's like oh when i when i get this big great job i'm gonna have like this like you know beautiful life it's like no my my white box cube house with the ikea furniture is going to be slightly larger um you know and i'm i'm never gonna sleep again it's not appealing <laughs> and i'm gonna be surrounded by like cluster b personalities oh, who are yeah. gonna lie about me and machinate against me um you know i feel like some of my friends they really want they wanted the ones that have like real jobs really wanted to go back to the office. And I was like, oh, well, I understand why no one wants to go back to the office. The office is like, this is the, you know, the the Pantopticon or whatever. <laughs> I, I like the anxiety and paranoia in the American office place is so palpable. I mean, I'm really happy that I no longer have to go into people's offices anywhere. I just, I just hang out with my basement, my little home office. <laughs> <laughs> Don't don't have to deal with the the weirdness of of American corporate culture. It's very I mean, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but there's something about it that uh it strikes some like deep chord in my like lizard brain that says like run. Well, no, everybody thinks that. <laughs> it, it, the difference is the difference is it used to be sexy. You know, the, the, the thing no, that's is, what I mean about it not being aspirational anymore. That the, really, it comes down to it is the simplest thing in the world. Yeah. People in the office used to fuck each other. Now they don't. So it's like before it was it was terrible. It was horrible. It was like, you know, very annoying and it was very stupid. But at the end of the day, you know, you got drunk on a Thursday in some kind of weird environment and you got to bang the intern. <laughs> bathroom, you know, or or you got to like do some weird shit. You got to do code. I know. I'm a, boss, I'm a someone know, like... who used to work at one of the agencies out here at a football party, like yeah. a Super Bowl party, and um, she was telling me 
that when she went into work, her assistant used to rack up lines of coke for her yeah. on her desk every day. This is probably in the late 90s. Again, I was at 72 and Sunny, the biggest <laughs> ad agency in the yeah. world, at in 2014. I worked there. And yeah. so I saw the tail end of this glorious, it was the best environment in the world. You know, it was literally like we would do these. Well, I feel like this is why they all have such a recruiting crises. We would do these work retreats and it was like 14 hours of drugs. And in, we would rent out like the most beautiful golf course. All of the fucking golf carts would be flipped over. It was just like people fucking in the bathroom, you know, every fucking drug. Yeah. Like it was just a total fucking insane party. It was so cool. It was the coolest shit ever. And then now that is all dead. It's gone. It's a hundred percent gone because you can't do any of that shit now. You think some boss can go like do coke with his intern? Like no fucking way. He's gonna get me too the next day. You know, like it's you can't do any of that shit. And I saw it. I saw the transition. Like you could see well, it going from the, one to the other. The reality is, is almost. And I know a lot of people who have jobs that other people be very jealous of. And virtually every single one of them tells me that they really wish they could go independent because they fucking hate their co-workers and think they're all demonic. Um, yeah. And <laughs> and well, it's just like the people left are. I mean, the people who are still. I know, I know. I mean, horrible. It's, it's also I, I think the it's really do or die. Like if you if you have the if you are talented enough to create work product that people will seek out and pay money for you should not work for someone else. <laughs> Absolutely. And this is why Will, my agency, has been able to be successful genuinely because bros will work for me for nothing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I shouldn't say this, but it's like God, talented dudes are so disgustingly fed up with this horrible environment that you're talking about that they'll come work for anybody that is like, will say bad words to them for very cheap because they hate, they hate the corporate environment so much that they're like, I will do anything to get out of this. Like I will do literally well, anything. I think, I think this is probably part of the problem Gen Z sees too. And it's all like the reality is wages have not kept up with uh, housing prices. So, you know, you could be young and making a hundred grand a year and your lifestyle is shit. You're on call 24 seven. You, you have, you go to work every day in this very paranoid environment. Um, What's the upside here? You know? Yeah, <laughs> and I right. think that. What am I, I getting think, out of this? We're, we're you, hear at least you should get laid, you know, and now you don't. More, we're hearing more and more whining um, from employers. Like I take the whining to mean that I'm not imagining this problem that they're actually having trouble getting people interested in doing the jobs they need done for the wages they're offering. And I think it's like, it is actually like an office culture problem. Um, there's not a good solution to it though. That's the other big problem because, you know, I mean, you're talking about like office sex stuff. There's just like, there's two options here. One is, uh, you know, you believe every accusation. The other is you ignore most accusations. Like there's just the nature of the problem is that there's not going to be a lot of proof. So I don't know what they're going to do about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. I, I do know also that like they, 
Yeah, like a hundred grand just doesn't go that far in Los Angeles or New York. No, it's nothing. So, and they used to be like, all right, I'll sell out for a hundred grand. Where now well, you're that's, thinking, the, the problem is that when that. you're selling out, you know, your lifestyle only really starts to improve in a major city towards like what we previously would have called like a middle class standard of living at pretty high levels of income that the companies can't afford. <laughs> just yeah, go back yeah. to my stuff is saying the companies should be like. No, please build more housing. We can't do it <laughs> because their lifestyle is shit <laughs> on the salaries right. that we can afford. Um, because I no, mean, you're right. That's a great the housing in New York and Los Angeles is San Francisco, whatever. It's the most expensive rental markets in the entire. We're really out of line with everywhere else in the world. Yeah. So, um, either we just like shrug and things keep getting worse or you build more housing. And then some of these problems get easier to solve, you know? Um, well, th what I love about what you're saying is it goes totally counter to the other super depressing side of this argument, which is the whole Peter Thiel thing of they don't give a fuck about the streets because actually the worse the streets are, the more expensive the houses on the top of the hill get. Right. Yeah. So it's like, and that's a very California thing. People outside of California don't understand. I mean, this I, like I don't think don't he, have this. I don't think I, he's wrong about that. No, he's this, right. Oh, he's hundred percent right. Yeah. But this is clearly creating pre like, okay, you want your fancy house on the Hill to appreciate in value. You also want uh, the labor market to serve the business you own. So, cool. you know, some of these things are the, the desire to have, like, like I was saying about clients, you can't pick every, you, like strategy means, you have to pick one. They're mutually exclusive. You can't do eight different strategies at once. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um. I, I mean, I, I, some of this, like, you feel nuts talking. It's like, if it's marketed for everyone, it's marketed to no one. This is a truism, but it's true. But you hear, you go into meetings all the time, and they're like, this product's really for everyone. And I'm like, yeah, that yeah. doesn't exist. Like, that's, this is just, everyone is just going to mean whatever bullshit you pull out of your ass well, because there's no general heuristic that covers everyone. That's why you have to do it on your own. It's, as you yeah. know, because they, they're too dumb. I mean, the longhouse cows are too stupid. They, they, they will never, they will never get it. You know, it's like they, they're never going to understand one day. You know, the, the only way is for you to start your own thing, which is what, you know, what we're doing. Well, I just, I mean, yeah, I, but I, but I do believe that mm, the labor stuff is going to get harder. You know, we, we, there, I, I think that there is a competency crisis. My perception is, I mean, I've definitely gotten more competent as I've gotten older because you're supposed to learn things theoretically. Um, <laughs> but I think that actually a lot of, uh, institutions I interact with, it seems like the competency is much lower. Um, so eventually this, you know, the let's just try and like immiserate the proletariat. It stops working when um, people just start saying, fuck it, you know? Well, I, that's why I like what you were saying so much because it, it goes against this endless uh, cycle of like, yeah, the, the, the people in the nice houses actually want not, it to be. Not no, like but what you're what? saying, that you're saying is the, if the companies want to function at all, they better hope that there's stuff in the cities. 
well, because, because people respond to stuff, you know, like yeah, well, young because people have the, to right. You good know, we jobs are all the good jobs are all in expensive housing markets, right? Yeah. So yeah. if you want competent people, um, you're going to have to figure out how to make those housing markets more affordable because people don't want super difficult, super stressful, super competitive jobs and then to live in a fucking hovel. Like that's just not going to work because the smartest people are going to jump ship earliest, but then other people are going to keep following them. You know, and and one of the, I ran into uh I forget like some like web3 entrepreneur or something. He's almost crying. It was at this birthday dinner in London about all of his problems with his consultants. He's like they're just getting so expensive. And I was like well, yeah, duh. You know, 2010s, everyone got fucked because it was a weak labor market. 2020s seems like we're heading towards a strong labor market. That means everyone is going to push for the highest rate possible. That's just how the, I, you know, I feel like a lot of businesses are all for market economics until, you know, they don't have the advantage. And then they start whining in the press. Like that guy who was like, we need 50% unemployment to teach people who they work for I was like okay yeah that's <laughs> that sounds more like uh how you unravel a society but sure or you know like i said you could build more housing <laughs> i don't know i don't know one like you know it's los angeles it's not quite houseman's paris um i think we could just put more condos in and it would be good. <laughs> well, I mean, you look at these places. We're not destroying some like medieval city center. No, we're not destroying a anything. lot of a lot of the housing in Los Angeles. I like LA. Sorry to Native Angelinos. It's dog shit. A lot of the housing here is absolute cheap dog shit. Put up new dog shit. New dog shit's better than old dog shit because it hasn't depreciated as much. You know, whatever, but build more housing. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> um, all right. Well, let's wrap this up here. Uh not that you need any, I mean, you don't even want anybody to find you. So there's no point in, in sending them anywhere, right? Or do you want people to go anywhere for to see you? No. No. Okay. <laughs> Just no. I'm 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 over being online. Fuck that. Dude, me too, man. Oh my <laughs> once I swear to God, I then I nobody believes me, but once I once I'm rich enough, I will never go on Twitter ever again. No, I mean that's the I'm I done. mean the really rich people that I know, none of them use any of this shit. No. It's it's like rich people not carrying cash, you yeah. know, or not having a wallet. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, you know who I am. Send me an invoice, you know, yeah. <laughs> know my driver will come pay you. Yeah. And I think I think the rich person version of that uh, will be rich people not having cell phones. Well, they're already doing that, right? I think they said the kid, they're always like, oh, they, they don't give their kids cell phones at all. Oh, well, yeah, because... I mean, they're deeply addictive and they probably stunt people's growth. Because what, what's the figure? Like, close to half of all fourth graders are illiterate. So we're but not... I don't understand. Where do you get your clients from? Because I have to use Twitter because I get so many clients from there. So, like, where uh, do you get your clients from? Yes. I mean, I have a website. Oh. They Google me or they find me on LinkedIn. Yeah. They send me an email. And they just see you around somewhere and they're just like... Uh, usually they've read my stuff and they, cause a lot, you know, I'm, I'm a specific flavor. I'm not for everyone. I'm not for every project. Um, I think sometimes people enjoy my work and they've read it for quite a while. And then they have something come across their desk that they need to do that they think, uh, would be something I would take on. 
and would be something interesting to work on with me. And then they reach out. And so a lot of it is just stuff like that. Wow. Nice. Okay. Well, you know, it's, I'm not gonna, I'm not, I'm not, the person, I'm not the person to go through uh, for your like influencer management <laughs> strategy or whatever. <laughs> um. All right, man. Well, thank you so much. This was great. Sounds good. All right. All right. Bye.